Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 7th, 2022. This is episode 3178 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday. So again, time for that expert counsel Q&A show of the week. And here's what I got queued up for you today. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, I got same story, different names. And we're talking about trying to control the economy from Dr. Ron Paul, the guy that's been around and seen it from the inside and the outside both for decades. Dan McAdams talks about Germany's self-inflicted energy crisis. Chris Rossini talks, how we sh talks about how we shouldn't give central planners more credit than they deserve. John Pugliano talks about investing from the standpoint of invest like a gardener. Amy Dingman, who we haven't heard from in a while, talks about using homeschooling to expand your child's world, where a lot of times the way that people that are critical of homeschooling describe it, the completely opposite. So it reduces the size of your child's world. I love this subject. I'm so glad that she spoke on it. Nicole Sauce will talk about Dealing with business associates when the goals align, but the ethics don't. And Jeff Lawton as a twofer, because his one was really short, to burn or not to burn, kind of ironic given the, uh, the interview that I had on Wednesday this week, and sinkholes, and would they be caused or aggravated by something like swelling? And then I have an email that I got about leadership, and in this case it's specifically in permaculture, uh, and I will mention it and give you a little bit of what was said by the guy that wrote it to me and wanting to be a leader himself. But I'm going to talk about the key to real leadership, and it's one that I think most people never realize, and it's why even if they have great leadership potential, they tend either to never become leaders or to become what I refer to as a limited leader. With that, let's go ahead and dive right on into it today and hear from Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini in that order. There's been a lot of excitement this past week in the, in the markets. There's a lot of excitement all the time. Sometimes they hide it, but the process continues. Spend, 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 inflate, 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 regulate, regulate, regulate. Mm -hmm. They've been doing that, but sometimes they lose control of it. They think they can control it, and that's the way the Fed's always operated. We'll get in trouble, but we can handle it. We can handle the inflation or recession. Uh, that way they always reassured me that I worry too much. They can, they can handle it. They can handle it. But now the Fed... Chris, don't worry about it. This is just uh, just talk because uh, it, it's so obvious that uh, they don't know what they're talking about, so we don't worry too much about it. But they have another goal. It was 2% for a long, long time. They missed it, and they missed it, and it's 8% and 9%. And now they have a new one, 3%. Well, it doesn't make sense. If, if they're at 0 and they want to get to 2 If they went to three, that's not a big deal. Oh, no, it's up to eight, nine, ten percent. They want to get it back down at least to three. You know, when you think about economic, central economic planning through the manipulation of money and credit and interest rates and have an understanding about the marketplace and what sound money is all about, you have to just throw up your hands and say, these guys don't know what they're doing. It's a fallacy to think that if you turn the responsibility over to government, they're, they're going to take care of us because there are too many variables and too many factors and too many special interests. And once there's intervention used to manipulate markets, then it's a contest between the interventionists. Germany, it's really interesting to see what's happened. It's kind of sad to see what's happened to Europe's powerhouse. They, drunk, they became drunk on Russia sanctions. They were intoxicated. It was a huge party. No downside. Unfortunately, now they've woken up to a bad hangover. German minister criticizes U.S. over astronomical natural gas prices. So the Germans, and this is uh, Richard Habeck, he is their economy minister, the Germans sh shot themselves in the throat, in the head, in the legs, in the <laughs> foot, 
by saying, we're not going to buy any gas from Russia. That's it. Forget it. We're done with this. We're not going to open Nord Stream 2. We don't even want a Nord Stream 1. We're going to wean ourselves off. And all of a sudden, they wake up with a hangover and realize, well, hang on a minute. That gas was cheap, and now you want to sell us gas at twice the price? Well, that doesn't seem fair. Let's put on this next clip. Here's what he's saying, Robert Habeck. Some countries, including friendly ones, wink, wink, sometimes achieve astronomical prices for their gas. Of course, that brings with it problems that we have to talk about. So they're shocked, shocked, shocked that now sending liquefied natural gas all the way across the ocean to Germany is costing more than just putting on a switch in the pipeline and getting it practically for free. And now they're upset that they're having to pay the market prices because they went along with the whole thing. Richard Habeck, who's whining about having to pay more for oil, here he is. He's from the Green Party in Germany. They're the ones that have destroyed <coughs> Germany's economy by closing down the nuclear, closing down the coal, closing down the oil, and thinking that a couple of windmills is going to power the powerhouse of Europe. He's the guy responsible for Germany returning back to the dark ages, and now he's whining about not having any oil. Uh, you know, people in our camp, if you want to call it, uh, there's a lot of pessimism, and rightly so. We live in a time where authoritarianism dominates people's minds. They believe in it. They want it, many people. So it's easy to be a downer. You know, it's, it, it's, not, it's not hard. You know, and there's many people who think, oh, this is all part of a big plan collapse, and they're going to give us digital currencies and social credit scores. You know, whether or not that happens, you're giving a lot of credit to people that maybe don't deserve that credit. I mean, look what happened with COVID. The new booster came out, and I saw that 1% of people, who are a little over 1%, are actually getting it. You know, and the fear was, oh, they're going to give us, it's going to be a medical tyranny, we're going to have to show that we're up to date. No. See, they, it flopped, you know. So we can't give them so much credit that they're just going to uh, maneuver the world to their will because it just doesn't work that way. And especially the Fed. The Fed has created the biggest mess in the history of the world economically. You know, to say that they're just going to erect a new system and it's going to be a success, you know, maybe that's not the best way to think about it. Uh, maybe it's better to have a little bit of faith that maybe some good can come of it instead of uh, we're dead no matter what happens. You know, that's not the way to go. And all you need is just a little truth. I mean, look at what Dr. Paul did in his presidential campaigns. Even with all the blackouts and, and everything else and people were making blimps just to get his name out there. And look, just that little opening, uh, all the good that came from it. So there's a lot of unknown variables, and we shouldn't be doom and gloom that we're just going to be stuck in this digital prison and we have no hope. You know, we should have a little bit of faith that maybe some good can come. So a, uh, a real quick couple add-ons to each of those before we move on to our next segment. On Dr. Paul's discussion about, you know, they think they can control things, but they can't. I've always agreed with that, but... Listening to him talk there was the first time I ever came up with this analogy. It sounds an awful lot like a sci-fi movie, right? Where some scientist does something that they think they can control and they lose control of it and it turns into a monster. You know, the fly or Jurassic Park or something like that. The same old story over and over again was what Dr. Paul was talking about, but isn't it... Really the same old story over and over again. A bunch of people that have a bunch of power, that can do certain things that other people can't. They never stop to ask that just because they could do something, should they? And what would be the result of it? And the economy really is like a living, breathing, biological uh, ecosystem. I was going to say an entity, but that would be like a single thing. It is, it is a complex ecosystem. And you can manipulate it, but you can't control it. And thereby, you can send it into uh, a real trouble. So your, your goal was to rein in inflation, and now you have 8% inflation. So we're going to do more of the same things that gave us an 8% inflation without addressing the underlying cause, just manipulating the points and the pinch points that we can. Um, as though all the human beings out there don't have their own choice in how they respond to it, and the market doesn't have its own life force. It is, it is playing with forces that probably should be left to themselves. 
It isn't that you won't ever get what you want. It's that sometimes when you get what you want, you'll really end up with what you don't in a hard way. Uh, next up was uh, when we were, we were listening to Dan talk about the pipeline, and I just didn't get an answer from Chris on this, but I, I suspect, since I wasn't here last week and that the segment came in from Chris Rossini a little bit early this week, that Dan's comments were prior to Nord Stream uh, being blown up. I asked him, I said, uh, uh, was the pipeline blowed up or not? And I said, I don't know if you get the movie reference, but serious question. Sounds like it was before, so everything he said is just added to in a big way because now uh, they're feeling bad. It's interesting if this happened before, and I think it did. All of a sudden, these people in Germany who were all for shutting down the pipeline and not buying gas start saying, hey, it's too expensive, and then ba-boom! You know, and this makes me think, yesterday when I talked about this on the live stream on YouTube, somebody popped up on there and said, Jack, you're wrong about Ukraine. Full stop the whole thing. I said, well, wrong about what? Wrong about the fact that it doesn't make sense for Russia to blow up its own pipeline that they could just not put gas into? Wrong that there's not enough U.S. There's no, no thing. There's not one thing you can point to that benefits a U.S. citizen enough to risk nuclear war over getting involved in this. Wrong that, that, that when I say that this is not new, this is a result of an eight-year civil war inside Ukraine that we stuck our nose into in the first place. Wrong about what? Wrong about what? And then the last thing, and I think this is really important, has way broader implications than Chris really even got into. Don't give credit beyond what is deserved, and not just in what has been done, but what they're capable of. One of the reasons that people become so in fear of government is that they, at one side of their mouth, you know, will not, and, and, and their head will nod along with what Dr. Paul said about how incompetent government is. But on the other side, they will paint their own picture of this hyper-competent government that can do all these amazing things, and we're all going to live in a cigar box and eat the bugs and be happy because the government has a plan to do it. Um, no. No. A lot of things that people say government wants to do or government is going to do to us, and I disagree. It's not because I don't think the bastards aren't evil enough to do it. I don't think they can pull it off. The, the reality is the bigger government gets, the more incompetent it becomes. And that's why if you look throughout history and the collapse of any government, it always collapsed while it was at its largest. The bigger it got, the more precarious the balance point became, and eventually it collapsed. perfect example would be the Soviet Union. Mid-80s was the, the, and I'm not talking about global reach, I'm talking about the size of bureaucracy. The mid-80s was the absolute zenith of the size of bureaucracy of the Soviet Union. And it soon came tumbling down along with the Berlin Wall. With that, let's move on. I got one here from John Pugliano. He's blending a few questions together uh, about investing, but specifically from the angle of investing like a gardener. Hello, TSP. We have two questions today, and both of these are familiar topics. The first one comes from Ryan He's asking about I-bonds. Ryan, this is a topic we've covered numerous times over the last year. I'm going to give you a partial answer today, but I'm going to refer you back to TSP episode 3003. That's an expert counsel show from December 16th, 2021. I give the full lowdown on I-bonds in that episode. But just to give you a quick overview, here's the skinny on I-bonds. The biggest limitation to them is that the interest rate is variable. So you've heard most of this year about how you can get over 9%, which is a fantastic rate, but the base rate to I-bonds currently is pegged at zero. So that means that the entire amount of interest is the variable amount which will go down as inflation goes down. In fact, these rates reset twice a year. The estimate coming up for November when it resets again is likely that the rate will drop down somewhere around 6%. And then projections for next November are as low as about 3.5%. So again, the biggest problem I have with I-bonds is that the rate is not only variable, but the fixed rate is currently set as zero. 
Now, that doesn't mean that I-bonds are bad, but you have to remember that every financial instrument is a tool. And so just like a Phillips screwdriver is fantastic for its intended use, if you try and use a screwdriver to hammer in a nail or to tighten a bolt, well, it doesn't work very well. So it all depends on what you want to use the I-bond for. And the two biggest things I hear people wanting to use it for, it's not that great of a tool. The biggest category that people want to use I-bonds for is as an emergency fund. And the problem with that is that you have to hold it for at least a year. And if that weren't bad enough, if you hold it for less than five years, you lose the last quarter of interest. So I don't see it as a very good tool as an emergency fund because your emergency funds should be liquid and readily available to you. And the only way you can do that with I-bonds is if you ladder into them But again, the problem with that is that's going to take you more than a year to get into it. And the problem with relying on I-bonds in the future is that these rates are likely going to go down by, you know, 60 or 70 percent within the next 12 months. The next biggest reason I hear that people want to use I-bonds is for portfolio management of their money. Well, that could work, but it all depends on how large your investment portfolio is. Because one of the other limitations with I-bonds is that an individual can only put $10,000 in. And that's per individual, so you could do $10,000, your spouse could do $10,000. If you have a business or a trust, that could do $10,000. So yes, if your investment portfolio that you're trying to protect consists of, you know, twenty to $40,000, I-bonds might be a good option for you. But if you have a significantly larger portfolio, then that $10,000 a year contribution is very limiting. So, hey, Ryan, there's some quick thoughts. Again, listen to that old episode. That's number 3003. I give more detailed informations in that segment. Now, the next question comes from Tim, and this is a familiar topic as well. He wants to know how to get started from investing from being a guy that's, you know, been broke most of his life. In part of the background information in his question, he says, so is it as simple as minimize your bills and expenses and maximize your income with side hustles in conjunction with the daily grind. Well, Tim, in that phrase, you summed up what I talk about of the three most important things about building wealth. It's earn, save, invest. You just talked about the first key principles, which are the main elements that's within the sphere of influence of each individual. And that's increasing how much money you make and minimizing how much money you spend. Now, everybody on Wall Street is always promoting the concept of investing to get rich or to get wealthy, and that's because Wall Street wants to sell you investment products. But you can't focus on investing until you've mastered the first two concepts, and that's what you describe, earning and saving. But you know, even that investing process is fairly simple and easy, and let's just take it out of the realm of investing. Let's say you wanted to plant a garden, and you look down the street, and there's some old guy down there that has a backyard that's just overflowing with fertility. And you think, hey, I've got the same soil and the same climate as that guy does. If that old boomer can do it, you know, how hard can it be? And so you buy your seeds, you plant your garden, you start to nurture it. And then in the spring, a late frost comes and kills half of what you planted. So you maintain what you can. And then the squash bugs and the insects and the deer and the rabbits and the birds they decimate your garden all summer. And just when you have that little bit of harvest left, an early frost comes in and wipes out any hope of production you had for that year. That's when you start thinking that, hey, gardening isn't so easy. But how does that old guy down the road do it? Well, he's been doing it for 30 or 40 years, and he makes gardening look easy because he's already found a way to work through all the problems that you're just encountering as a beginning gardener. So he takes risk mitigation strategies to protect against early and late frost. And he selects his varieties that are the hardiest for the climate and does the best in the soil type in his area. And none of the things he does is very complicated, but it's a system and it has to be done in a certain order. And then there's always a variability to it from the weather and other outside factors. But the old guy has resilience because he's accumulated this very practical knowledge and wisdom. Well, investing is pretty much the same way. You mentioned that even though you're broke, you're putting away $100 every week and investing it in Bitcoin. 
Well, you know, you've answered your own question there because that's exactly how you get started as an investor. Now, we can debate about whether you're saving enough money, and we can debate about whether you're getting the proper portfolio diversification by putting it all into Bitcoin, and we can debate about you know doing it on a weekly basis if that's better than if you should try and swing trade or time the market. But, you know, those are all the finer points of investing, and that comes with wisdom and experience and it's based on your risk tolerance and also the market you're in. And you know, just like planting that garden, those answers will come to you over time as you grow in wisdom and experience as an investor. So Tim, I think you're on the right track. The important thing with anything is to not give up, don't quit, and to focus on the long-term goal and then build your individual plan so that you can get there. Well, hey, I hope that helps. Thanks for all your questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Great stuff, as always, from John. Next up, and I, I was really uh, happy to get this segment to come in. We haven't heard from Amy Dingman for a while because she's been doing some things in her own life that have uh, taken her away from the expert counsel time. Uh, but she's back now, and this is one of the better segments and better subjects for a segment on homeschooling, and I'll definitely have some add-ons after you hear from Amy. Uh, how about let's expand the world of our children through homeschooling? Hey, everybody, this is Amy with the Farmish Kind of Life podcast. It's been a hot minute. I have been away for a few months. I apologize for that. I was on a little bit of a summer vacation myself for my own podcast, but I am back and I'm here to answer your questions about homeschooling. And today, I really just want to take a second to talk about something that has come to my attention because we are done homeschooling. We are done unschooling. We graduated our youngest this past year, and it's been interesting because over the summer, my husband and I were going through old videos of our kids, and they were playing music, they were playing guitar and drums and piano, they were by themselves, they were in the living room, they were with bands, they were on stage, and we were watching all these videos from way back many years ago up until now, and it got me thinking, and I think it's important to point this out, not just to parents, but homeschooling parents specifically, because when we pull our kids out of school or we decide not to send our kids to school in the first place, we sometimes don't know what we're building until it's built. We don't know what kind of life we're giving our kids until they take everything that we've opened up to them and do what they're going to do with it. Sometimes you don't know what your kids are going to do with everything that you open up to them. When my kids were really little, they used to mess around every so often with this crappy little red and black guitar that we had that was too big for them. And and they'd make up funny songs with it, and they'd, they'd just basically mess around with it. And if you would have asked me back then if that was going to turn into anything, I would have laughed at you. I would have shrugged it off, and I'd be like, no, they're just screwing around on, on a guitar. My kids are 18 and 19 now. And growing up as homeschoolers or unschoolers or eclectic schoolers, whatever you want to call us, they had so much time, a gazillion hours a day to pour into their interests, right? And now, I mean, we spent all summer following our youngest around to all the gigs that he was playing, watching him on stage at these shows where sometimes, you know, my husband and I were just a dot in the crowd, you know, I'm I'm listening to my oldest who's putting out new songs and working on his third album. And I'm like, what? You, you're releasing another album? What? Like, how did we get here? I never would have thought that when they were younger, when they were taking all their time messing around. I'm using air quotes here with music. They look so alive when they are playing or writing or recording or performing. And it is the coolest damn thing to see. And you're thinking, Amy, why are you bringing this up? I'm bringing this up to say the world is really big and really amazing. And I want you to open the world up to your kids. I want you to show them all the things. I want you to give them all the options. We always had instruments hanging on our wall, just various instruments that we would pick up in random places. And we'd tell the kids, yeah, you can play with them, take them down, play with them, respect them, don't break them. But yeah, whenever you want, pull them down and play with them. That was always open to them. I didn't know that meant they were going to grow up to be rock stars, you guys. That was not anything I thought. But that was something that was opened up to them. Open up the world 
to your kids. Do not let homeschooling make your world smaller. That is not the point. Use homeschooling to make their world bigger. Show them all the things. You never know what they're going to do with the things that you show them, with the options that you give them. And here's the thing. They might do something completely different with it than you expected. But that's probably how it's supposed to be. And I'll leave you with that. Feel free to send in more homeschooling questions, family questions, whatever it is that you want me to talk about. I would love to have some more questions to answer. Have an awesome day and enjoy your kids. What a fantastic segment and what a fantastic viewpoint and something I want to expand on a little bit. This is something I've noticed, and, and my kid, my grandkids who were homeschooling are still very young, and we have yet to see the fruits of this really begin to produce, because like Amy said, you don't know until you get there. But I was listening to this, and I was thinking about how last week um, we didn't have them. I was gone for half the week, but even the half week that I was here with my wife, we didn't have them. And the reason we didn't have them was they were on a cruise with their parents and uh, some friends of their parents and their kid. Um, and they went on a great cruise. And you might be like, well, that's not homeschool. Wait a minute. Like traveling to other countries, uh, experiencing other cultures, uh, having fun. Like this is about being a kid. But like that experience would have been almost impossible for them to have if they were part of the school system because, you know, now they're the thing they want a doctor, a doctor's note and whatever. I, I don't even understand it because when I was a kid, even in the public school system, if your old man said, hey, I got my kid out of school uh, for the next couple of days to do something, they might have said, well, here's his work or something. They never told him no. I remember when my son was in high school, they, they came up with all this attendance shit about, you know, like, you need permission to take your own kid out of school. I was like, the hell with that? This is my son. I, he does what I say. I'll make sure he keeps his grades up and all. But, you know, no. And, and now it's even worse. And I think about my grandson, Braylon, and my wife's been taking him to uh, coaching, individual one-on-one -on -one coaching, with a guy that played double-A minor league ball, and he's doing batting coaching and fielding coaching and things like that, pitching coaching. He's a hell of a good little pitcher. Kid's wailing away with about a 65-mile-an-hour fastball at 11 years of age. I don't know if I could hit a ball the kid threw at me. He's getting that experience. And he's been, you know, archery classes, individualized art classes. My granddaughter, same stuff, plus cheerleading, plus dance and gymnastics. And, and it's not just – because I know a lot of you are going to be like, well, my kids are in other activities. And so, yeah, but they have time for it. They have time for it. So when your kid is hearing the uh, teacher yell at them to sit down and fold their hands for the 15th time, they're done with their work, and they're exploring these things on their own. My, my grandson is obsessed with big cats. Maybe he'll do something in wildlife biology. It'll be whatever he wants. There's a there's an undertone in this, though, that wasn't said by Amy, and I want to bring it up now, but it's something I've talked about before, and that is you don't get to decide what your children do with their lives. Your job as a parent, grandparent, mentor, etc., is to make sure that they have the tools they need so that when they get to the point of making those decisions, whatever decisions they make, they're capable of executing. And school, from a standpoint of status school, is a complete antithesis of that. And we have been seduced by it as we are products of it. And what I mean by that is my grandson and my granddaughter will take two entirely different paths through their education, even though we're using a recognized curriculum with Excellus Academy, with a core curriculum course, right? But that's only occupying a couple, three hours a day of their time. The rest of their time is spent exploring education, however they see fit. If it happens to be watching some stupid sitcom one day with Papa Jack or Old Bugs Money cartoons and asking why that's there and learning about history from it, fine. If it happens to be my grandson researching, you know, who would win in a fight, a lion or a tiger fight, I don't care. Whatever it is and whatever wherever it goes, they'll have this path that will be as unique as they are because they're given the freedom to explore it. 
And if they want to go do something or see something, they'll be able to do it. If something comes into the museum and he's interested in it and asks to go, one way or another, we'll make sure he goes and sees it. Is that going to happen with school? If he gets interested in a certain kind of art, we can explore that. Or a certain concept, or whatever it is, we can help him explore that. Yeah, world is bigger, is the great is the best way I've heard it described. And I saw a little bit of a cautionary tone in Amy's thing, like, make sure you're... Di I don't know that it's possible that you wouldn't. Because I will tell you this, no matter how good a teacher is, no matter how good a school administrator is, no matter how good a principal is, no matter how good a person they are, they'll never care for your children as much as you do. Because they can't. Because it's impossible. And, and, and some people won't like it when I say that, but if I said they did, you wouldn't really like that. You'd tell me how stupid I am. And then you'd be right. They'll never care about your kids as much as you do. So they'll never make the effort that you'll make to expand their world. Because, one, they don't care as much, and two, they can't. Next up, let's hear about couple different things from Jeff Lawton. One, to burn or not to burn, really short segment, and sinkholes and how they would be affected by things like swales. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from South Africa. And um, I'm uh, teaching courses here and getting trying to catch up with my um, <coughs> expert council recordings. And uh, there's one here from someone wanting to burn a pasture so they can mark out a swell to put in a food forest with one to two foot high trees this autumn. I hope I'm in time. Um, I definitely wouldn't do that because you've got a resource in the grass that'll mulch the trees or even mulch the swell trench if you want to. So um, can you not cut the grass and rake it up or even better, run over it with a forage harvester and place it in the positions near where you're going to put the swale and the fruit trees? Or can you not bale it, run a baler over it, cut it with a, uh, a tractor, uh, windrow it with a, with a pinwheel rake into windrows and then bale it up? All of those things would be great. Um, at, at the very least, cut it and rake it to one side, uh, put your swale in and then rake it up and put it around the fruit trees. That's definitely the better way to go. Now, I have a question here about a cave and cast region um, and uh, someone's concerned about sinkholes. And they have a spring coming down the hill uh, from behind the property and it sounds like it's coming through the property then going underground. Now, most sinkholes are caused by um, the reduction of water in the landscape. In other words, the aquifer has been pumped down or in this case probably the cave has taken uh, a lot of the surface water away. Um, and that's what causes the sink. So it seems we get more sinkholes around um, aquifer extraction or lowering aquifer water levels. Uh, swales are the absolute opposite. Swales are a way of recharging aquifers, but also distributing water quite evenly through the topsoil and subsoil. And then if we're planting trees, which we should be, because swales are tree-growing systems, the divinative swell actually grows trees. The trees increase the function by extending the life of the water in the swale mound and just below. It slows down the transition of water even more. So you're getting very fine misting of water through the swale line length, and that's not concentrating water down any particular cavities or causing erosion anywhere. It diminishes erosion. So it would you would assume that swales especially once you've got tree establishment, are going to stabilize sinkhole um, areas and situations. All right, good stuff from Jeff. Next up, I have a segment from Nicole Sauce. This was an interesting question about being in a position where you have the opportunity to work with somebody where it might be beneficial to the business, but there's a conflict uh, with, with your own personal ethics. And I thought Nicole would do a good job with this one. And as you'll hear, she did. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with an expert counsel question from Ashley and Dylan. And the question is this. How would you navigate maintaining a professional relationship that serves your target market but does not align with the ethics of what we teach our client? 
And the sticky widget goes around that their brand specializes in preparing moms for an empowering pregnancy. And because of that, they work with places where certain services can be done, like an ultrasound can be given. And one of the companies they work with referred them to a supplement company and said, hey, we put this rep in touch with you to talk about a partnering on the supplements. And I believe what they're talking about as far as ethics go is they don't agree with the use of these specific supplements in the pregnancy process and really don't want to go into a partnership, but it's being referred by a company that they use for a totally different service that's provided during pregnancy. And I guess I can only say this about that. It's going to happen all the time that people will say, Hey, you need to use this other thing and you may not agree with it. But if what's important to you in business and what's important to you in your brand and what's important to you personally is establishing core values and core principles and that thing does not align with them, even if it's a little bit awkward with a different business partner, it's totally okay to say, I just don't think this is a good fit for what we do. And thank you very much for the referral. You know, that's, that's it. There's no reason to have to feel pressured to adopt best practices from somebody who you do not support their best practices. It's not a thing. I've, I've done it with my brand a few times where there's a product that I actually think is a pretty cool product. But the way that it's positioned is not how I position my podcast. And so if I were to adopt that, that product as is, then it wouldn't really work because I would be teaching one thing on my podcast while doing something else just because of a profit motive. And while I do like money, I think it's more important to stick to my principles and my values than just make a buck every single place. Likewise, if you are in a relationship with somebody who's going to end that business relationship because you did not align with another brand that has nothing to do with them, or even that they're partners with, then they're probably not somebody you want to be doing business with. And if that becomes endemic in the field you're in, it may be time to think about how can I use this differentiation that I stick to my principles and that our values are important to totally bust through all of that stuff and replace these other people who are not behaving ethically. That's my opinion. It's gotten me far in business. I never want to recommend something that is not 100% in alignment with the things that are important to me and to my brand because that undermines my brand. And long-term, that can really cause some damage. Hope this helps you out. Guys, if you want to know more about what I'm doing, you just check out my podcast over at Living Free in Tennessee. And if you love premium, freshly roasted coffee, we do that at Holler Roast. That's hollerroast.com. Make it a great week. I completely agree, and I can't tell you how many times it's played out, and you guys have never known about it. I've been approached with business opportunities left and right that I know could have made me a lot of money. And as the audience has gotten bigger and the show's gotten bigger and the reach has gotten broader, it's been more so the case that it would have made me a lot of money. But there's a reason it would have made me a lot of money. And if I had to sum it up in a single word, it would be trust. So if I put a thing out and say this is a thing and it's a good thing and you should get it, then you're more likely to get it if you trust me than if you don't. And most of you have been listening for any length of time as much of a dick as I can be, it must be that you trust me or you wouldn't tune in. And it's not that you trust me to be right, it's that you trust me to be honest. And that's all I've ever asked. I, I literally have said since day one, I've reserved the right to be wrong. I've even been criticized for reserving the right to be wrong. And I don't know who these people expect me to be. So, so yeah, I agree. Here's a perfect example. I have been approached multiple times by companies that are like, we want to market the Jack Spearco bug out bag. And I'm like, well, I have episodes to tell people how to put a bug out bag together. I think most of the stuff people need in a bug out bag, they already have. Because what you need to support yourself for 72 hours. And if you couldn't support yourself for 72 hours right now, you'd go get the things that you needed. So like extra clothes and stuff like that. And, you know, a basic knife and some backup power and all that. Like there's only a few things people really need. And what people want will be different from person to person. And they're like, no, you don't understand, Jack. People want someone to do the work for them. 
All you have to do is tell us all the items put in the bag. We'll make the bag. We'll ship the bag. We'll put your name on it. And then you just have to market it, and you'll get X dollars for every bag you sell. And we'll sell a lot of them. And I'm like, well, you might sell a lot of them, but not with Jack Spirico's name on it. Because I already have episodes that I've done that specifically address this, and I said not to do what you're trying to do. I said, don't go buy this shit. So how can I? Well, they won't rem I've literally had people tell me they won't remember that. You can take that episode down. I'm like, you better get the hell away from me. When you compromise your integrity once, it's only a matter of days before you do it again. And when you comp your, compromise your integrity twice, it's only a matter of hours before you do it yet again. And then at that point, the integrity no longer matters, so there's no reason to worry about it. That's the way that path leads. And it is a perfect lead into my subject for today. And it comes from an email that I was sent. That, you know, I get a lot of emails, but this one just struck me. I'm going to read part of it. It's from a gentleman named Bruce. He said, Jack, your TSP rewind about remembering Bill Mullison hit me like a ton of brooks, bricks falling from 30,000 feet. I recently posted my latest effort to a podcast that was titled Jack is a Jerk, and it was absolutely correct. You're a jerk. Paul Wheaton's a jerk. Billy Bond, you're all jerks. The message that I got from your TSP rewind is that we're all leaders, and I want to be a leader. But not a leader who wants power over people or subjects to a kingdom. A leader, by my definition, is a teacher, a person with vast knowledge that returns that gift back to people in order to make everyone in the community prosperous through ultimate co cooperation and sensible actions. And he goes on, very, very moving email, much longer than that. That's about a third of the, the mail. For the purpose of my segment, though, that's enough. You get the gist. Leadership is something that at certain times in my life, I so unconsciously did what I'm about to tell you that it, it actually got in my way and almost hurt me. So here's an example. I went to work for a company many years ago when I started in sales. It was a structured cabling company. And I'd only been there about six months. And during that period, they had made a decision to change the software that the company was being run on for quotes and bids and inventory and all all of that stuff. And it was really a shitty platform that they picked to replace the system that we had. Now, due to some changes in law and the way revenue had to be reported and the way this company worked, it was necessary even if it wasn't the best, right? And one day I was bitching about something with this software And the the ops manager for the company heard it, and he was freaking pissed off. And he said, we're going to talk at the end of the day. And it's like, oh, man. It's like when your wife tells you, like, we need to talk, but not now. Like, oh, shit, it's going to suck. And the thing I was bitching about was actually a way that certain margins were calculated. He came back in later, probably to say, I want to talk now before the end of the day. And I've got a whiteboard, and I'm going through these calculations with my manager, Richard, who is positively useless as a manager, as a leader, and as a mathematician, and realizes what I was bitching about, and asked me to go into one of the, the, uh, the rooms with him. We worked through it together, figured out how to make this work, and he realized I wasn't in general bitching that I was using Richard to try to figure this out, because Richard was useless But at least I could talk to him kind of like bouncing a ball off a wall. And so he had this, and he was a good mentor. His name was Ron. And he had a conversation with me about, you don't even know how much weight you have here. I was like in my early 20s. I had no idea, for instance, that my manager, Richard, who was useless, was also terrified of me. No idea. He was 10 years older than me. He was, he was terrified I was going to take his job. I didn't want his job. I was making plenty of money doing what I did without the problems that come with being that manager in that, in that place. I had started giving bonuses out of pocket to project managers when they brought a big job in, you know, at a, a really good margin where I made a really good riff. And it wasn't a lot of money. I'd give them like a hundred bucks and say, go take your guys out for a beer when you finish up today and, and do a good job on the punch list. Well, I had no expense account. I had no way to do that other than here's a hundred bucks. 
I just made six grand on the job. Giving the dude a hundred bucks was a good investment to me. I had no idea the impact that that had. It didn't even make. I wasn't doing it to buy their loyalty, and they knew I wasn't. I had no idea I'd become a leader in this company. And he said, "You can get people in this company to do things that I can't." And you did it in six months. And his approach was clearly you knew what you were doing. That basically he saw me as someone manipulating the system. And he realized in this discussion with me, I had no clue. It was like walking around with a power you didn't know you had. And once you know you have it, you can channel it. But until you know you have it, it can be good or it can be bad. I call it the leader within, being the leader within. The person in an entity or an organization that if you buy in, everybody buys it. He ended up asking me to write an ops manual for how to use this, how to adapt to it, and to basically get behind it because his ass was in a sling if it didn't work and he needed my help. And he said, "Will you help me with this?" And he said it differently. I, you know, when I was a kid and I worked in a place, and they, we need we need your help with cleaning the bathroom. And like what that really means is you work for me and go clean the shit house. He didn't. Mean, he literally was asking me for my help. And it made an impact on me. And I realized then that it had been a pattern in my career and why I had moved ahead so quickly in so many places. And that is, I acted like a leader before there was anybody to lead. Put me in a place where it's only me and I'm an independent, I'm going to lead myself. Give me one person, I'll lead them like they're a team. I was cognizant of this so that when I started doing this podcast... By the time I had like 20 people listen to it, I was talking to that core 21st followers like they were 20,000 people, and it wasn't very long, about two years, that they were. And then you watch how this, when you do it and you model it and you live it, replicates itself. And I just got a like a big payday, not money, sitting at Self Reliance Expo and watching Tim Toolman Cook talk about how to monetize content and listen to how he answered some of the questions. And there was a point he looked over at me, and I put my hand on my heart. as dead serious. I said, I am so proud. I am so proud. Because he's taken this and run with it. He's going he's gonna to blow up, guys. He is. He's on the verge of a breakout. But it's because he's got it. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. Content creation, leading a military unit, teaching, right? It doesn't matter what it is. Leadership is something that I believe is innate, but this is the secret. It's innate to all people. All people are leaders. If you get them into the position where they are both competent and passionate, and there are people around them that want what they have, they'll lead. The most introverted person will become an extrovert in that. I've seen it. I've seen it here. I've seen the person at a workshop here, kind of sitting back, barely talking. You can tell they're a little uncomfortable. Pretty good group of people at bringing people out of their shell. And somebody say something to them, and they'll say something that they do. They don't think anybody's interested. And somebody will say, well, what's that? And they'll start talking about it. They'll see three or four people are surrounding them. And instead of running away like you would expect an extrovert or an introvert to do, they come out. And they're teaching. They're teaching like they've done it their whole life. Maybe they've never spoke to a group before. And they're leading people because teaching is leading. Because you're leading someone in the, in the foundational aspects of exploring and building upon knowledge. So if you want to be a leader, then you have to lead before there's anybody to lead. If you want to be a leader in your family, you need to know a couple things. When to step up and when to shut up. The, the hallmark of a good leader, no matter your rank, your position, your title, is that when you realize that you're in the presence of somebody for this specific thing that has a little piece or the whole thing, it doesn't matter, but at this moment they are more suited to deliver than you are to you step out of the way. Here's the secret. The more established and respected as a leader that you are, the more it means when you do that. The more that person feels empowered, the more that person becomes proud. The more that person will stretch beyond what they thought they could do. 
the more the passion will build in them for the thing that they're pursuing. It is amazing how much a simple nod and silence, as in your turn now you go, can mean when you've built up to that type of leader. I've seen it with teams that I led in sales and marketing. I saw it with teams that I led as a, that were doing engineering. I didn't, I'm not not even the engineer. They should have all been in charge all the time, but they weren't. right? Because engineers can't talk to customers. Right? No, because they didn't understand what we were doing. They just understood how to build a thing. But when you switched them on to what we were doing, they said, oh, no, you don't want that. This is what you want. And instead of shutting them down, you say, tell me why. And then you go, wait, wait, wait a minute. What are you doing? I'm going to go get the sales guy. Well, he's, he talks to him. No, he's not going to talk. He's going to shut up and listen. You bring a sales guy and you say, listen to this man talk. Now, you're going to adapt this when you go talk to your customer or your prospect. This is what you're actually selling instead of what you think you're selling. Doesn't matter if it's sales, teaching, permaculture. Doesn't matter if it's competitive sports, business, personal life. Leaders lead when no one's watching. And they perfect their leadership skills before anybody depends on them. So that when they're in the position to lead, they're confident as they lead others. I thought it was a great email, and that's what it what it brought out of me. So uh hope you guys got a lot out of that one. With that, I'm ready to wrap up today. want to remind you, you can always support our show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Don't have an item of the day for you, but just, just remember that. You're wanting to help the show out. You want to help me out, support me and my family. You're going to buy something online. Just go to tspaz.com before you shop online. And everything that you do see reviewed there, It's I own it, I bought it, I recommend it. I'd buy it again or I wouldn't recommend it to you. And you can also join the Member Support Brigade. Go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members to learn more about how to do that. Use the discounts. Get your money back. It's a win-win-win situation. With that, I will catch you on Monday. Regularly scheduled programming next week. Just Jack on Monday. Bitcoin breakout on Tuesday. Guest appearance on Wednesday. Who knows on Thursday. Expert Council Q&A on Friday. Jack is back. Been a good first week back. Take care, guys. Catch you Monday. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a bed.